friends, let's open in our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah chapter 26. We begin this chapter last week. We heard that Jeremiah goes into the temple and he preaches a sermon and he's immediately arrested for what he says. And we're going to pick up that story in verse 16. Hear now God's word. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Michael of Morsheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the house of a wooden height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring a great disaster upon ourselves. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shimea from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against the city and against his land in the words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. And King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and others with him, and they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to the king Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. Let's pray together. Father, we tremble when we hear the fate of Uriah, a man who seems by all appearances to follow you and do what you say and meets a very bitter end. Would you allow us to open our minds and our hearts to hear you even in dark days, even in the valley of the shadow of death? Do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we know that we're in an incredibly volatile time in Judah's history. We're 26 chapters into the book, and we're already on our third king of Judah. You had the righteous king Josiah, but he was killed in battle, and he puts his son as king in his place, but that son only lasts for three months. And so Pharaoh makes Josiah's wicked brother Jehoiakim king in his place. These are very desperate days, and one needs to be careful what one says and where one says it. A couple of weeks ago, back when we were in chapter 25, we read about this cup of wrath that's being poured out over the nations to drink in their judgment. And Jeremiah, as he's preaching this sermon and he lists the nations that are going to be judged, he says the final nation to drink the cup will be Babylon, except He did not actually say the word Babylon in 2526. He said Shishak, which was a code word for Babylon. Why would he do that? Preaching a sermon, talking about Babylon, but using a code word instead of the name itself. He did that because talking trash about people in power in public could get you killed. That's Jeremiah's world. That's the world that he's up against in his preaching. So we hear that last week God calls him to preach in the temple, which he does, and he's immediately arrested, and then he is put on trial for the death penalty. 
The prophets and the priests, we read in our passage, the religious professionals, they want Jeremiah dead. They want him gone. They want to be rid of him. They want him executed. But this crowd of lay people gathers together, and the elders among them, they speak out and make this really good point from the book of Micah, and Jeremiah's life is spared. He gets to walk away from this trial a free man. Now we immediately hear that that's not how things play out for the prophet Uriah. The prophet Uriah, he comes and he preaches the same message to the same audience and he gets the same reaction except for one little difference. Jeremiah is released and he's let go and the prophet Uriah is executed. Now that's got me chewing on what I think is a really important biblical question. It's a question that affects every single person in this room, especially if you are a believer and especially if you have suffered. And all of us, I think, have asked this question of ourselves in different times and in different ways. Here's the question. It's really long and it's really snarky. What happens when you are a good Christian who tries to do your best With everything that God says, you keep a Bible reading plan, you pray with your spouse, you volunteer once a month in the nursery, you've already made a pledge to the building fund, you listen to Caleb, you're an all-around, stand-up, tax-paying, neighbor-loving, HOA-abiding, leather-bound, gold-embossed, Bible-carrying Christian, and even if you do all of these things you still end up like Uriah, extradited, executed, and dumped in a mass grave. What then? Where is God in that? When we suffer, like when we suffer big S suffering, we are diagnosed with cancer, we experience a divorce, we have a death in the family, or even little s suffering, like my car breaks down or I stub my toe, my knee-jerk reaction is to ask, what is God doing in this? Why would he allow something like this to happen? Does he love me? Does he even like me? If he does, why does he continue to allow these bad things to happen to me? And if that's the question on the front, I think there's actually a darker question that lurks behind that one. And that's this. If it's possible to do my best to follow God and do everything that he says and still end up like Uriah, why try? Why am I playing a game that I cannot possibly win? It's been a few weeks since I've quoted the Broadway play Hamilton, and so I feel like I deserve another quote today. These feelings are exactly mirrored in Aaron Burr's lines in the song, Wait For It. This is what he says. Death doesn't discriminate between the sinner and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes, and we keep living anyway. We rise and we fall and we break and we make our mistakes. And if there's a reason I'm still alive when everyone who loves me has died, I'm willing to wait for it. Jeremiah, he comes, he comes prophesying in the name of the Lord. He comes prophesying against the city and the land. And at the end of the day, he walks home unharmed. Uriah does the same thing. He comes prophesying in the name of the Lord. Verse 20, it's against this city and against the land in words like those of Jeremiah. 
And he's killed, probably decapitated. Death doesn't seem to discriminate between the sinner and the saint. It doesn't even seem to discriminate between the saint and the saint. We want to know, where is God when a decent Christian suffers? When a decent Christian meets an untimely death? What was so wrong with Uriah that he was singled out for this fate? Before we can answer that question, I want to do a quick biblical survey. I want to show us that this situation is not actually unique to Uriah and Jeremiah, but that there are several other places in Scripture where you have two righteous men standing in front of you. It's hard to distinguish between both of them, and one of them is spared, and one of them is killed. We're going to look at four deaths that show us this comparison in Scripture. Number one, think about John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, we were joking earlier about what a decent Christian is, that you kind of abide by your HOA and you carry a leather-bound Bible. But Jesus said very plainly, John the Baptist wasn't just a decent guy. He was the greatest among men. John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of Jesus. He was prophesied about in Scripture. He was a modern-day Elijah. And yet early on in his ministry, you have this scene where both he and Jesus are doing street corner preaching. Both of them are edgy preachers. Both of them challenge human authorities over them. And yet somehow in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus lives to preach on another day and John the Baptist gets his head lopped off and served up on a party platter. When John's disciples go to collect his headless body to bury it, Jesus is out preaching to a crowd of more than 10,000 people. Whose ministry was God blessing on that day? Who was God closer to on that day? It might make perfect sense to us why John the Baptist would be killed then and Jesus would be spared in those moments, but I promise you this did not make perfect sense to John's parents. When they asked, What are you doing, Lord? Our son did everything you asked of him. In fact, Jesus said so himself. He did it better than anyone who has ever lived. And this is what he gets for the ministry that he's done for you? John the Baptist and Jesus. Number two, think about Jesus and Peter. If we thought John the Baptist was worthy of better treatment, what could be said about Jesus? He's standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers come to arrest him. It's Peter who draws his sword and whacks off the ear of the high priest's servant. And yet Jesus is arrested. And Peter, who is clearly the lesser of the two, he's the one that gets to walk away scot-free. If God's own perfect son was arrested, tried, tortured, crucified, then maybe the merit of a man's life is not the measure of his death. Here's a third example, Peter, James, and John. We know a lot about Peter, James, and John. We know that they were the closest friends that Jesus had on this earth. They were his inner circle. They got to see things that the other disciples didn't get to see, like the transfiguration. And a question we could be asking is, what did that status in the kingdom gain them in the world? And the answer, according to the New Testament, is two of them will die young. 
There's a very quick story in Acts chapter 12 where both Peter and James are arrested. Both of them are arrested by Herod. Both of them are thrown to prison. And both of them are left to sweat about their faith. And as they're waiting in prison, there's a knock on both doors. On Peter's door, it's an angel who's appeared to lead Peter out of prison and on to freedom and on to years of fruitful ministry. And when James comes to the door, it's the guards who lead him out to be executed before Herod. Peter escapes, James is killed, but Peter actually doesn't get very far. One of the last conversations Jesus had with Peter and John was very disturbing. Jesus tells Peter in a very roundabout way, John is going to live out his natural days, but Peter, you're going to die one of the more gruesome deaths of them all. You're going to be crucified upside down. And it happens. You've got these three righteous men, These men who were the closest friends that Jesus had on earth, they're the building blocks of the church, and two of them die young, and one of them lives out his natural days. How do you make sense of something like that? I'm overworking the point here. You've got Jeremiah and Uriah. You've got John the Baptist and Jesus. You've got uh, Jesus and Peter, Peter, James, and John. If we're looking in our Bibles for clues as to why one dies and another lives, because after all, there must be something wrong with the Uriahs of this world and right with the Jeremiahs of this world, we are barking up the wrong presupposition. We're kind of starting with this Americanized worldview where good things happen to good people, where what God wants most for us is what the Constitution wants most for us. Liberty and justice for all, right? Surely if God loves us, then that's what he has in store for us. It's a world that we begin to create where obedience and decency is rewarded with health and wealth and disobedience is punished by the inverse. If you haven't been grateful enough for the health that you have, you might get nailed with chronic pain. If you fumble in your parenting style, your kids will probably hate God. If you cheat on your taxes, God is going to break your business sooner or later. This is how we think of the world. When I was in Bible college, there was a kid on my hall who had just this awful sticker on his door that said this, every time you lust, God kills a kitten. Isn't that terrible? I mean, and there was a lightning bolt and a kitten on the front of the sticker. It's awful, but it captures a world that makes sense to us. There will be immediate consequences for wrongdoing. You see someone who's suffering, and you can't help but think, what is wrong with that person? What is God trying to teach that person? What's the lesson he's trying to bring to them? What is he trying to restore in them? Where have they gotten off track, and why is God trying to get them on track through suffering? I think it's a world that makes sense to us, because that's how we treat other people. We bring consequences to the wrong that they've done us. It's a world that makes sense to us, but it's a world that has nothing to do with the Bible. The Bible does not tell the story that way. The world that we've constructed, it wouldn't fit a Uriah. 
He's a fallen man, of course. He struggles. He has his own sins. But he's a prophet. And he's obeying God with courage. He's preaching the gospel in a dangerous place. And for his trouble, for his ministry, he's killed. If Uriah thought that God's love for him amounted to the good things that happened to him in his life, he would despair. Like when he escaped to Egypt and thought he was safe, but then he was found and extradited and brought back to Jerusalem and he was put on trial for the death penalty. But Uriah knew the story of Jeremiah that he experienced the same thing and he was released and let go because the people came to his aid. And Uriah started to think, maybe that same thing is going to happen to myself. But as he stands in front of King Jehoiakim, he hears the death penalty pronounced over over him and Jehoiakim draw his sword. Don't you wonder what Uriah thought? Where are you, God? I was with you when you needed me. I was in the temple preaching, which is what you asked me to do. I was with you. Where are you for me? If he would have thought that, he would have missed the gospel according to the book of Jeremiah. We started by asking the question that's the nearest to our hearts when we suffer. Why would God let something like this happen to me? But of course, that's a question that puts ourselves at the center of the story as if God had to answer for the experiences we endure. It's just not the right question. I had a friend of mine recently give me a different question to ask in the midst of our suffering. As we suffer, as we experience these things, what if we ask this? How is Jesus, in this moment, inviting me into his story? Jesus is at the center. His story is the grand story. When I suffer here and now, how is Jesus inviting me into his story? And part of Jesus' story is found in Jeremiah 9.23. We know this verse. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. And for that matter, let not the educated, let not the beautiful, let not the healthy, let not the well-connected, let not the well-spoken of, let not the homeowner or the churchgoer boast in any of these things, but let him who boasts, boast in this, Uriah, John the Baptist, James, Peter, this church family, that he understands and knows the Lord. Everything else will fail us. Everything else will fade. This is the sweetest news you could possibly hear. That I know and am known by the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this is going to take turning our world upside down and believing something that's really hard to believe. That when the darkness screams, that when it feels like we cannot possibly do what you're calling us to do, when the darkness is too dark, you tell us, Let him who boasts, boast not in our experiences, not in our security, not in our gifting, but that we know and understand the Lord. Let that be our song we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.